Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Good evening. It is Wednesday evening, March the 29th, 2023. Good to see everyone here. I thought tonight that we just might make it all the way to Armageddon, but we're not going to make it there tonight. So we'll, Lord willing, we will hit Armageddon next week. Um, someone mentioned numerology to me after the class last week. She's not here, though. I don't see her, so I guess she'll miss this section. I would like to cover a little bit of numerology, especially the number seven. She was particularly interested in the number seven because the number seven shows up all over the place in Revelation. It also shows up throughout the New Testament, especially the Old Testament. So I thought it might be good just to cover a little bit of the numerology and how numbers are used in the book of Revelation. One number that is very common is the number four. Usually when the number four is used in the book of Revelation, it has to do with the earth in, in, some, in some manner. For example, in Revelation chapter 7, we see there's four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds. So you've got the four winds, the, the four compass directions. Revelation chapter 4, you see the four, there are four beasts around the throne. One looks like a lion, one a calf, one a man, and one an eagle. That is the complete nature. You have, you have the, the creatures of the air, creatures of the beast, creatures of the field, and creatures men. You also have in chapter 20, we'll cover this more when we get there, you have it dealing with the idea of war. In this case, it's the four quarters of the earth. Now, seven is found all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, God rested on the seventh day. The seventh day was to be kept holy, the Sabbath day. Passover was lasted seven days. There was a famine every seven years. How many times should I forgive my brother? Seventy times seven. That seventy is seven times ten. We'll talk about ten in just a moment. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 6 and the priest shall dip his fingers in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 14. And the priest shall dip his finger in and shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. So we have seven even involved in the, in the temple worship. Uh, Jericho, you march around the city seven times, and on the seventh day, you march around seven times. Naaman was told to dip in the Jordan River seven times. Seven shows up everywhere. It is an idea of completeness, wholeness, all. Now, in the book of Revelation, it's found several times as well. Seven churches, the seven spirits of God, the seven lampstands, the seven stars, lamps of fire, 
seals on the scroll, horns of the lamb, eyes of the lamb, angels, trumpets, thunders, thousands of slain in the earthquake, heads of the dragon, crowns, heads of the beast, final plagues in chapter 15, we'll get to today, tonight, uh, seven angels from the temple, the seven bowls of wrath, the seven heads of the scarlet beast, seven mountains, seven hills in chapter 17, and then you have the seven kings plus one. The number seven is everywhere. If you'll recall, several months ago, Brother Colley mentioned in one of his sermons how the number seven in the Bible was used to mean a completeness, a wholeness. And sure enough, that's exactly the way it's used in Revelation. Number 10, the number 10 is somewhat similar to the number 7. It means complete, whole as well. Number 12, when the number 12 is used in the book of Revelation, it usually refers to God's people. In particular, you have the 12 tribes mentioned. You also have the 12 apostles mentioned. The number three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, they're all the same amount of time. You're going to find in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation both that these numbers are used in the context of an unstable time. Uh, it could be persecution, it could be bondage, it could just be trouble that's occurring. We've already talked about the number 666. The number 1,000 is means many, not just in the book of Revelation. If you go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years a day. Is that an equation? Nope. It just means many. In Revelation, we use the number, the number 1,000 comes up quite often. It's used in a multiplication. You remember when, when Jesus was asked, how many times should I forgive my brother? Jesus used multiplication to mean many. Revelation does the same thing. Any comments on numbers in Revelation? Pretty straightforward. I should have fixed my slide to just say Revelation 15, but I got Revelation 15 through 16. We're going to see some characteristics of God in chapter 15 and also into, into chapter 16. Judgment belongs to God. God will decide when the judgment takes place. God's ways are just. God's ways are true. Only God is holy. And then Jesus is going to return as a thief. That's actually mentioned, I think, in chapter 16. Have you heard that before? That's mentioned in the Bible already. Okay, I do not see my reader here tonight. So, okay, someone else had actually volunteered and wanted to read, but I do not see him. Um, so, yeah, Mark, can you read chapter 15, please? Okay, this is from the ESV. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, but with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. 
standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Very short chapter. This chapter is setting us up for Armageddon, by the way. It's setting us up for this final judgment. And in case you can't tell, I really do like this lady's paintings. She does an excellent job. If you haven't had a chance to uh, visit revelationillustrated.com, be sure and stop by and and take a look at her artwork. She does a really good job. Um, She is a premillennialist. She is a self-proclaimed premillennialist, but she specifically says that she left out all premillennialistic references from her Revelation pictures. She said, because she wants everyone to use them. She does a very good job with that. Verse 2 and 3 are rather interesting. Those who had gotten the victory over the beast, they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. If you go to the song on Jordan's stormy banks, interesting chorus. It says, we will rest in the fair and happy land just across on the evergreen shore, sing the song of Moses and the Lamb by and by, and dwell with Jesus evermore. Kudos to the author of this song. They did, they, they did a good job. And they did something rather interesting, too. You can tell that the author of this song, of this poem, actually, actually read at least parts of the book of Revelation before he wrote this song. In the verse we just looked at, let's see if we can go back. And they sung the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Notice the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb are mentioned together. That's what he did in the course as well. So double, double kudos to the, to the writer of that song. Now that does pose a question. What is the song of Moses? What exactly is that? There are actually two possibilities. There are two places in Scripture that people refer to as the Song of Moses. One is in Exodus chapter 15. I would like to read five different five verses from this chapter. Verse 1, 6, 11, 13, and 18. Verse 1, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. This was, this is also referred to as the song at the sea. This is when they were delivered from, from Pharaoh's army. 
Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has shattered the enemy. Verse 11, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic and holy, revered with praises, performing wonders? Verse 13, with loving devotion, you will lead your people you have redeemed, and your strength will guide them to their holy dwelling place. And by the way, that verse 13 is reiterated in chapter 19 of the book of Revelation when these souls of the saints who had been murdered in the tribulation had found God had taken them to heaven. And then, of course, verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The second place and possibly more likely the song of of Moses, in most people's Bibles in Deuteronomy chapter 32, you actually see a heading that says the song of Moses. I'd like to read the, the last verses of this chapter 45 through 47 of Deuteronomy 32. When Moses, had, when Moses had finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all these words I testify among you today, so that you may command your children to carefully follow all the words of the law. And they are not idle words to you, because they are your life. And by them you will live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess." I guess either one of these could be called the Song of Moses. I'm really not exactly sure what the Song of Moses actually is, but these are two places that are referred to as Songs of Moses. Now, what is the Song of the Lamb? That one's a little bit tougher. And quite frankly, I don't know. What would the contents of the Song of the Lamb have in it? I suspect it's going to have the same contents as the worship scenes in the book of Revelation. When God is mentioned, when Jesus is mentioned, when their characteristics are mentioned, when their attributes are mentioned, that's probably going to be at least a part of what the Song of the Lamb is going to contain. And since Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, you would think that that would be the case, that that, that the worship scenes in heaven would contain at least a part of possibly what the uh, Song of the Lamb is. If you go back to these verses, verses 3 and 4, it says, They sing the Song of Moses, Song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. Thou King of saints, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all the nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made, mani- are made manifest. That sounds just like another one of the worship scenes in heaven. Any comments on that? Well, what's, what, what is your understanding about the idea of the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb? Let me uh, bring this back here so you can talk to everybody. I noticed that the Red Sea song is some of it. There are some quotes from that here in Revelation 15. So it would seem, since it's quoting that, that would be the more logical assumption. Okay. Yep. Now on this other one, let's see. Let's go back. Oh, 
In Deuteronomy 32, the theme was basically God redeems and God judges. That's found too. But yeah, you're right. You're right. It could be. It could be. Any other comment on that? Any other ideas? Yes, sir. Hang on just a second. Yeah, so I don't don't know if this is one other possibility, but, you know, back in Revelation 5, uh, when the Lamb first took the scroll, um, in verse 9, it says they sang a new song, and it was a song basically praising the Lamb. You were worthy to take the the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. So it's possible that's also a reference to a new song. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Throughout the book of Revelation, you're going to see that, that theme over and over again. And sometimes in just regular talk, sometimes in the worship scenes, that's true. I wasn't sure if there was something magical about the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb that I was just totally missing. But that that's a logical explanation to me. Does that sound pretty logical to, to the rest of you? Thy judgments are made manifest. What is the purpose of this judgment? Do you remember back, oh, I don't remember if it was lesson one or two, maybe three. I mentioned to you that if you ever have a question about Revelation, sometimes if you will give Revelation enough time, it's going to answer your question for you. This judgment that is going to be made manifest is actually talked about in chapter 16. That's part of what Armageddon is. We're going to find out specifically for actually the first time in the book of Revelation, specifically why this judgment is taking place. But we're not going to get to 16 tonight. We'll get there next week, hopefully, and then we can discuss it then. Oh, Unless we have time tonight, I don't know. Here's the last slide. (laughs) Okay. Now, I told you that chapter 15 is setting up Armageddon in chapter 16. Here's the setup. Verse 7, And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now this vial... the uh, that's the, the King James ver- uh, translation. The New King James says bowl. Bowl, it, 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 this, this Greek word actually means a shallow or a flat bowl. The, um, that artist rendition that I showed you earlier, that's actually accurate. It, it, it's a shallow, not deep at all, bowl. So you're going to find this, this word found, I think, it, I think this Greek word is found 12 times in the Bible, and every time you hit that word, the King James calls it a vial. It's perhaps in 1611, a vial meant something besides what it means today. But that's what they're talking about. It's a, it's a, it's a shallow or a flat bowl. Wow, we got through 15. Okay, well, let's, let's, uh, let's read chapter 16. We can at least get started on 16. Um, can you give can you give power to the mic over here? Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, "Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God." 
So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there never had been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, And they cursed God for the plague of the hell, because the plague was so severe. Are we going to get to Armageddon tonight? Maybe. Okay, from chapter 15, we see that the four beasts, one of the four beasts gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Here are those bowls. Bowl number one was noisome and grievous sores. That word noisome, noisome, I guess that's how you pronounce it, it means to have an extremely offensive smell. The second bowl was a sea. The seas were turned to blood. The third was rivers and fountains became blood. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? This has happened before earlier in the book of Revelation. The fourth bowl was... Men being scorched with fire. Now on bowl number four, as well as bowl number five and bowl number seven, 
it says that the people's reaction and response to these to these punishments, to these these bowls of wrath, was to blaspheme the name of God, and they repented not. So be thinking for be thinking for a while. Is God giving these people one last chance to repent? I don't know why else he would mention that they repented not. If they had repented at that point, even though judgment was just just around the corner, they were about two steps from judgment, was he still going to spare them if they repented? Good question. I'm not sure the answer to that. I would say yes, because otherwise, why would he mention in both 4, 5, and 7 that they repented not? Don't know. Bowl number five, the beast kingdom filled with darkness. Number six, the Euphrates dried up and made way for kings of the east. We'll talk about the kings of the east in just a moment. A great voice from the temple, bowl number seven, said, it is done. Because you have judged thus, you are righteous. So what judgment is it that is coming upon these people it is a judgment according to verse 6 because they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. Therefore you are given them blood to drink because they are worthy. Sounds to me like this is the first time in Revelation that God is specifically saying these people are being judged because of what they did in the tribulation. Does that sound like, does that sound like what he's saying here to you? This is identical to what the tribulation was defined as being in chapters uh, 1, 6, 7, 19, and 20. This may be the actual first time in Revelation where it is specifically said they're being judged, the villain of the book of Revelation is being judged because of what they did to the saints and the prophets. There's that verse, one of the verses that says they repented not. Well, what do you think? Was God giving them one last chance to repent? Even at this late hour? Is that, is that how merciful God is? Does he allow repentance up to close to the end of your life? There is a story about about people going working in the fields. Some started early in the day, some in the afternoon, some at the 11th hour, and they still got paid the same payment. That's consistent with this verse saying that God has given them a chance to repent all the way up to the very end. We're very fortunate that God is, is, that, is, that, is that merciful. Even to people who maybe we think don't deserve the mercy. Okay, kings of the east. Premillennialists, premillennialists love this. They, they, they come up with all kinds of different reasons that this verse says kings of the east. What do you think kings of the east might mean? What did kings of the east mean to the Israelites, to the Hebrew people? When they thought of kings of the east, what did they think of? I'm sorry, what? Oh, wise men. Okay, yeah. 
Once, once Israel, once Israel in the Old Testament fell away from God, what did kings of the East mean to them? They're about to get in trouble, right? They're about to be defeated. They're about to be invaded. They're about to be taken away into bondage and probably be punished for 100, 100, 200, 300 years. Uh, Syrians and Babylonians are two examples. The Persians, turns out, are not ex- not an example. I, I researched that. It turns out the Persians actually came in and liberated Jerusalem from whoever was occupying Jerusalem at the same time. I wanted to put Persians in that list, but I can't. It's just Assyrians and Babylonians. Kings from the east or from the northeast to the Hebrews, to the Israelites, usually meant trouble was coming. Punishment of some type was coming. It was that's where their enemies usually came from. So question What is Armageddon? You ask ten premillennialists and you're gonna get ten surprising answers. Is it a nuclear war between the United States and Russia? That's one of the theories that, that premillennials like to put forth. Is the Armageddon, Russia, and China teaming up and invading Israel? There's some discussion on the internet right now about the recent um, summit, meeting, whatever you want to call it, between the leader of Putin, the, the leader of Russia, and the leader of China. And premillennials are starting to look at this and say, huh, that sounds kind of familiar because we think the kings of the east is Russia and China teaming up against Israel. You also have some saying that it's not just going to be China and Russia, it's going to include, what was it, India and Japan. Some say North Korea, but uh, I don't know about that. But it's definitely that they're premillennialists are claiming that that these kings of the east coming to Armageddon are going to actually fight God literally a physical war between their armies and God's armies, their armies and God's army singular. It's going to be Russia and China for sure, they say, but it's probably going to include Japan and. India. So is that exactly what what Armageddon is? Once again, the kings of the east, kings of the earth. They're they're getting together. They're gathering them all together. It looks like the villain of the book of Revelation has sent out his evil demons, these little frogs, sent them out to, to gather all these armies up so they can fight against God. We've already talked about that. Okay, I'm ahead of myself. In an article called March Toward Armageddon, it's at this, at this website. It's um, thetrumpet.com. It's an online news organization. There is a their article that was written. I'd like to read two or three paragraphs from it. It's rather interesting. The paragraph in the article that has a header says Armageddon. It says... 
In the near future, a culturally and religiously diverse Asia will ignore its differences, celebrate its similarities, and join economically and militarily to form the most gargantuan army in history. Challenged by the European powers to its west, it will strike back with the most devastating force ever unleashed on one entity, ultimately annihilating that church-state union once and for all. This will lead to the march to Armageddon. The blast of the seventh trumpet angel announces the return of Jesus Christ, coming just in time to save mankind from nuclear annihilations, and they use Matthew chapter 24, verse 22 to back up their claim. And to take the reins of rulership on earth, they use Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 as as a source for that claim as well. Of course, unrepentant mankind will not be happy about this, Revelation eleven eighteen. The nations will be so angry toward God, in fact, that what is left of the beast power and the kings of the earth, of the east, will form an alliance of their own, a reaction to the greatest power and army of the universe, God's army, to fight the coming king of kings. This is when the river Euphrates will dry up to prepare the way for the kings of the east to gather in the valley just northwest of Jerusalem. This three-and-a-half-year war will conclude with Christ utterly wiping out feudal man's, man's feudal efforts to maintain and control of the world. And they use Zechariah 14, verse 12 for that claim and at which time Christ will set up his perfect, peace-producing, world-encompassing government. There's premillennialism. There's premillennialism talking about these kings of the east, the river Euphrates drying up so they can come in, march in, come in, invade Israel from the north, I guess. What is this perfect, peace-producing, world-encompassing government? What do you think that is? Anyone want, anyone want to take a wild guess what that is? Hmm? I'm sorry? <laughs> no, but you know, I'm, I'm actually surprised premillennialists don't talk about the United Nations, actually. No? Not them. Premillennialists claims this is the thousand-year reign. If you look at the premillennialist chart... The battle of Armageddon is supposed to immediately precede the second coming of Jesus, which immediately precedes the thousand-year reign, also called the millennium. So this battle of Armageddon is going to bring on the second coming of Jesus, according to premillennialists. And the second coming of Jesus is when the millennium will start. Do you remember when we talked about the number 666? Do you remember what the verse said about 666? It says it's it's the number of the beast, and it's what? The number of a man. It's a number of a man. No more, no less. What does Revelation say about Armageddon? It says the same thing. It's a place. It's the name of a place. No more, no less. Premillennialists like to read a lot into this, just like they like to read a lot into 666. 
Actually, when I took my, my first revelation class, <laughs> I confess, I, was, I actually left the class mad. I, I wasn't mad at the teacher, I was mad at myself. Because I couldn't believe, I believe, I could not believe that I had actually believed all the things I had heard about Armageddon. And when I left the class, I discovered Armageddon is just the name of a place. There's no big, there's no big, uh, hoopla surrounding it. It's just the name of a place. That's all it is. And I was expecting expect something really exciting to happen. You know, I, I thought the teachers would get there and just get, just go crazy over Armageddon. He didn't. He just said it's the name of a place and moved on. I was, I wasn't disappointed, but I was mad at myself that I had believed all these crazy things that I had heard all my life from these premillennialists. Um, and of course, the church really did not have a response to what premillennialism was saying, so I was only hearing Armageddon from one side. Armageddon is a lot like 666. 666 is the number of a man, no more, no less. Armageddon is the name of a place, no more, no less. Let's take a look at that word. The Hebrew word, if you actually look in a Greek Interlinear, it'll say H-A-R space M-E-G-E-D-O-N. That's the Hebrew spelling of this word. The word H-A-R is a Hebrew word meaning hill or mountain. And in this case, it's the hill or the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo or Megiddo, however you want to pronounce it, either way is fine. It's just the name of a place. It's not even the name of a fight. It's not the name of a war. It's not the name of a battle. It's the name of a place. Let's take a look at a map. Okay, in the south you have the Dead Sea and a map of Israel. In the south you have the Dead Sea. You've got the Jordan River going all the way up to the Sea of Galilee being the eastern coast, the eastern boundaries of Israel. And, of course, you have Jerusalem and Bethlehem in the, in the south-central area. Up in the northwestern corner or actually northwestern span of Israel, you have something called the Jezreel Valley. This is also called the Plains of Megiddo, or Megiddo. Now, looking at this plain, at this valley, from, the, from a bird's eye view flying over the Mediterranean Sea, you see that this valley actually connects with the Mediterranean Sea, and it heads sort of south sort of, what, southeast, and about halfway through its travels, it then does a dog leg and heads northeast. Um, some, some, place, some, some notable places close to this valley, you have Mount Carmel. It's on the, it's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Just east of Mount Carmel, you will find the Megiddo Fortress that the Valley of Megiddo or the Plains of Megiddo is named after. That's almost dead center of the southern edge of the southern boundary of this valley. Now, if you keep going on the southern boundary of this valley, keep going east a little bit further, you run into the city of Jezreel, which which this uh, this valley is actually named after. If you go to the northern boundary of this valley, you go directly across the valley from the Megiddo Fortress, you have a little city called Nazareth. 
If you head east from Nazareth, you run into a city called Endor. You remember Endor? We've talked about that, that place already. And Endor and, and the witch of Endor. This is a picture of the fortress of Megiddo. We are running out of time. This is the actual fortress, and I'm just going to read to you the characteristics of it. It is a small mountain in northwest Israel looking over the Jezreel Valley. It is an army fortress, an army fort, built on a mountain approximately 55 miles northwest of Jerusalem. The Megiddo Fortress sets up about 10 acres, uh, it sets up on about 10 acres of a summit of the Megiddo Hill. It rises about 21 meters above the valley. Megiddo is historically used to guard the road, this passage, this valley. This valley was one of the main passages to get to Asia. In fact, the Egyptians used it all the time to get to Asia. In the Old Testament, we have record of Joshua capturing this valley from the Canaanites. Now, what's so important about this valley that it would actually be mentioned in the book of Revelation? This valley has quite an interesting history. It seems that the kings from all these areas would come here to do their battle, to fight each other, to settle their differences here on this valley. Why would they do that? One of the reasons is they didn't want to attack each other's cities because to the victor goes the spoils. You don't want to go and destroy a city, and now it's yours. You've got to rebuild it. So the kings would actually meet in this large valley to settle their differences. Up to 34 known wars occurred at Megiddo, starting starting supposedly as early as 2350 B.C. And historians are saying that they think that people have actually been living in this valley since 5000 B.C. The entire world in this area, the entire world knew that this, 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 this valley was basically a battleground. It was a place where you could go do battles with, with other kings. It was a place where differences were settled. That is apparently why Armageddon is used. There's no big war that takes place. It's, it's a judgment that's taking place. And God uses this, this analogy of this valley to represent the judgment he is about to, to pronounce on the villain of the book of Revelation. God and this villain are about to settle their differences. And the reason these little frog creatures went out to gather these other kings of the earth. We're going to find out why that happens once we get to chapter 18. And I'll give, I'll give you a preview of that. It's because the villain is not the only one that's in trouble. His accomplices are in trouble as well. Today, this, this is considered the breadbasket of Israel. It's a very fertile plain and I guess probably most of the crops grown in Israel are grown in this valley. There are four names that you will find in the Bible for this, for this particular valley. The Jezreel Valley is among the most common. The Greek word for Jezreel is E-S-D-R-A-E-L-O-N. 
Isdraelion, however you pronounce that, Tanik. Tanik you will see in Judges chapter 5. And of course, the Valley of Megiddo. All four of those names are, are the same place, this Armageddon. Here are some of the battles in the Old Testament that were fought there. You've got, what, five mentions in the book of Judges, two twice in the book of Joshua, uh, two in 1 Samuel, two in 1 Kings, two in 2 Kings, one in 1 Chronicles, one in 2 Chronicles. And here's a list of the nations who actually, that they, history, historians know of that actually fought in this valley. So it was it was a it was quite a well-known place. A lot of kings knew this place. In fact, I don't know I don't know if I can prove this and I'll I'll, I'll end on this note and we'll wrap it up next week. In the story of David and Bathsheba when David was in Jerusalem, scripture says he was supposed to be where? In war, in battle. There is a chance that the place he was supposed to have been was this valley. Very well-known valley, very well-known for its fighting and its battles. Okay, we will pick up there next week. Thank you, that is all. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.